In this first episode of a two-part special of Folktales, we join Portland Marina's Bee Woodland, who has been speaking with Liz Sanderman from ocean conservation charity Marine Connection. Liz and Bee have been talking all things dolphin, from the Cetacean Code of Conduct to the unveiling of the Danny the Dolphin Memorial at Portland Marina in 2021. Let's hear what they had to say. Good afternoon, it's Bee at Portland Marina and I'm joined today by Liz Sanderman, co-founder of the charity Marine Connection. Hi Liz, welcome to Folktales. Hello. So uh, Liz he has been our primary contact at Marine Connection, uh, advising on the well-being and observation of firstly Danny the Dolphin and more recently Will and Harry uh, whilst they've been in Portland Harbour and coming close into the marina uh, and also helping us in uh, advising on what we can do to keep dolphins safe. Um, and how we should educate our customers and the general public. And we also partnered with uh, with you, particularly Liz, as well, on Marine Connection when we were fundraising for the memorial for Danny, which is situated at the marina here. So welcome and uh, and first of all, do you, do you want to tell us a bit about how and why Marine Connection came to, to be set up? Sure. With regards to Marine Connection, uh, both founding members of Marine Connection, which is myself and my colleague Margaret Dodds, um, were, were involved in closing down the last dolphinariums in the UK. Um, this was actually going back to the late 80s, early 90s. And after the, the last facility closed, we, we went on to work voluntary for some of the relevant charities and the NGOs. Um, and as the years passed, decided to start a voluntary group to wa- raise awareness about dolphins and whales in captivity, as that was our main our main focus, and named it Marine Connection. Um, at the time, as I say, it was a voluntary group and it was to raise awareness of the issue. Um, but then some years later, um, after working further afield, getting involved in various campaigns and projects globally, uh, Marine Connection then became a UK registered charity. And yes, yeah, so as I say, after being involved in, in the actual campaign to close Windsor Dolphinarium, we both felt driven to change the future for, for captive cetaceans. And that's slowly grown over time into covering dolphins in the wild, cetaceans in the wild as well. We work in various uh, projects and campaigns, both um, in the wild and captivity. What was it that sparked your interest in cetaceans and their welfare? Did you always envisage yourself as um, as a child growing up? Were you interested in marine biology? Was it um, something else that, that uh, sparked your interest? Well, strangely enough, as a young child, I always loved the ocean and I was always very interested in animals. When I was um, a little bit younger, when I was around about, say, 17, 18, I actually trained to be a veterinary nurse. Um, so my love of animals was always there, but dolphins and whales was never really high on the list. And then I think it was round about late, round about 1989, I went to see a wild solitary dolphin known as Fungi in Ireland. Um, and after seeing him, just made me realise just how restricted and confined captive dolphins and whales are and how it impacts not only the physical but mental well-being. So this drove myself and, and Margot um, to establish the organisation as it is today and to work globally on this issue. Um, this year, actually, it's it's a big milestone in, in the UK with regards to the history of captivity, because it's now 30 years since the last dolphinarium closed. 
And what we want to do now is, although there's no legislation in place, um, we really want to continue our call for a ban on the import of export and display of captive cetaceans within the UK. Wow, and that that's still happening in, in other countries around the world. It's happening in, in countries around the world. Uh, Spain has the largest captive dolphins in Europe. Um, they're still capturing from the wild to stock facilities. Tajin, Japan um, still take dozens of animals each year, um, which range across uh, a mix of species specifically for entertainment purposes. And some of these animals that have been captured in Taraji over the years are actually in facilities in Europe. So this is still happening today. And if there's no public demand, there would be no captive dolphins and whales and tanks. I, I remember quite vividly, actually, I was remembering while you're talking there about um, going to SeaWorld in Tampa in Florida and it's being wowed by the, the orca, not so much the dolphins, but the orcas they had there. And I can see that, you know, as children, it's a fascinating sight, but we're not being taught anything about the the background of those animals, where they've come from and, and what their life is like in captivity. No, there's there's very little, if any, education in, in facilities, really. It's all about the happy clappy. Uh, the dolphins are happy. Um, as I say, if, if the visiting public only knew the truth, um, as I say, these, these facilities wouldn't really exist. And when we're talking about cetaceans, just um, just explain that term for us. Uh, cetacean um, it covers it covers all species of uh, marine mammals, uh, commonly known as the the word cetacean is is whales, dolphins, and, and porpoises. So it covers all the species um, from the largest, which is the blue whale, um, right down to the vaquita porpoise, uh, which is only found in the northern end of the Gulf of California in Baja. Uh, Mexico. So cetacean just covers an entirely aquatic group of, of marine mammals. From the from the littlest to the, the largest? Absolutely. From, from, the, from the giant uh, blue whale, uh, which can re- reach about 100 feet, to uh, the tiny little Fakita porpoise, which is literally a few feet in length. Wow. What is, I mean, is the greatest threat to them humans? Uh, you know, or is it, is it the, the fact that they're being caught for our our fun almost um, in captivity, or is it that uh, is it something else in the wild that's more of a threat to them? There's two main. I mean, obviously, um, wild captures for the captivity industry is a major concern. The figures that might be at the moment, it, at one point, it, it could have been thousands of you know dolphins and whales per year. Russia hasn't for some time caught any of the wild killer whales. Well, not in in the last year or so. But the two really main threats to um, cetaceans is noise and also what we call bycatch, which is fishing gear, not only um, in the wild worldwide, but also in the UK. Fishing gear, it just negatively influences. It just, the survival of dolphins and whales, but without question, the biggest threat is net entanglement. Mm. And as I say by that, I mean fishing gear. Yeah. Could be large fisheries such as trawlers, seine net, uh, smaller inshore fisheries such as lobster pots, ropes, and um, that are attached to the boys at the surface. Uh, no matter what, they all kill dolphins and whales. Yeah. And it's estimated that uh, absolutely. So, yeah. really, without question, it really is fishing gear that's the biggest threat to 
to dolphins and whales and porpoises in the ocean today. It's estimated that over 300,000 lose their lives each year to the fishing industry. But being realistic, we could probably add about another 100,000 to that because many deaths will go unencountered for. Yeah, I mean, we've seen the sad sight of um, porpoises on Chesil Beach locally um, tied up in rope and netting and things like that. And, and obviously Danny, so uh, the, the dolphin that we had down here in Portland up until um, 2019, October, October 2018 actually, wouldn't have it, which I think now, um, he, he got himself entangled uh, a couple of occasions actually, I think, but uh, particularly uh, in a mooring, around a mooring boy in Swanage. Um, and we had a, a dire local diver went out to him and, and managed to unwrap him. Um, I remember that, yeah. Which I think was where the naval will, one of the Murray First Dolphins came from when they were named down here. But a lot of people, I think, think that they're named after the Prince, uh, Prince Harry and Prince Wales. But uh, as far as I understand it, I have been told, I might be wrong, that they were uh, named after Old Harry's Rocks and Will the Diver. Oh, okay. But there you go. Because I believe da- uh, Danny was Danny previously. He was splashy. He was. He was. Um, he was splashy uh, when he was actually seen around Newquay and Penzance in Cornwall, from around about two thousand and seventeen until early two thousand and eighteen. Um, and he was also, depending on which location, um, he was sighted in. He was also known as Pierre. Ah, yes. So that's why when a dolphin appears, um, you know, and it does stay in an area, and it becomes quite a social dolphin. Um, I mean, over the years, we had a, a dolphin in Kent who we discovered was female, but by then she was already called Dave. Um, <laughs> and we, so we, we tended just to leave the name Dave just for, just for ID purposes. Yeah. Yeah. And when, but when you're IDing them, I mean, obviously you're able to track these dolphins around. They're, they're, they're quite well traveled, some of them. Danny's so, sister, I think. Yeah. Um, I mean, Danny, well, he was quite well travelled. I mean, sort of coming from Cornwall. Um, but then we've got some other dolphins that are really well travelled. I mean, we we haven't seen him for a few years, but there was a, a male bottlenose dolphin called Clet, um, and he was well travelled. He originally came over from France, um, seen around Dorset, Cornwall, uh, Devon. He made his way over to Ireland. Uh, we had sightings of him as far up as the Hebrides in Scotland. Um, and then he came back down again. He was sighted in the Isle of Man, off the coast of Wales. So he was really well-travelled. So that's what we would actually call a solitary dolphin. He didn't really interact with humans because I don't think he was in the same location for long enough. Right. So we would just class him as, say, for example, just like a solitary dolphin. Um, but then you get this, the solitary dolphins that will come into an area that over maybe some weeks, some might stay for weeks and we don't really call them social, um, solitary social. It's really when they've possibly been in for much longer and they start interacting with members of the public that maybe enter the water or rather the public enter the water to interact. And then they, their, the behaviour starts to change. The behaviour starts to change, yes. Um and literally without fail, it happens to every solitary social dolphin. They go through what we call um, the habituation um, stages, which the stages are, are found in Marine Connection Lone Rangers report, which can be found on our website. So it's when the animal comes in, 
the most of the time they'll hang around a boy. Then you just see them over the the weeks or the months. They start losing their weariness, and then over a, a much longer period of time, then they really do become quite habituated. And is there any particular behaviour um, in terms of you that they're becoming dangerously habituated? Is there is there something that you there's there a point where they they come become so habituated that it becomes a danger to themselves? I think it becomes a danger to themselves because, as I say, they lose their weightiness around vessels because there's no reason that a dolphin, well, pods of dolphins are quite wary. You'll see them by riding. But on the whole, you know, they're quite wary of vessels. They're quite wary of people getting in the water. You know, there's people go out to the Azores to swim with these creatures and, and I've witnessed it firsthand when I've been over there monitoring the dolphins. They're really not interested in the swimmers. So people think they're going to an area to swim with dolphins, but as soon as they they enter the water, the dolphins are off. So that's wild dolphins. So there's no reason then when the solitary social dolphin becomes habituated, there's no reason that they really should think, oh, you know, that vessel is a danger to me, if that makes sense. You know, it's like Danny following the boat into the harbour. I mean, that was, was unfortunately, it was just... You know, it was just, yeah, you got used to, you know, you got used to the tugboat or you got used to the boats and it was just, it was, it was just a tragic accident that was just waiting to happen. And he wasn't the first animal to, or dolphin to be killed in this manner. Um, and he certainly won't, he won't be the last. Sadly, I mean, I, I remember just before I think Danny uh, was killed, there was uh, one found over in Scandinavia, I think, potentially living in. Um, and then around the same time, I think fungi also disappeared, which was, it was sort of seemed to be a bit of a year for it, which was very sad. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because when Danny died, I was he was only ten years of age, so he could have easily lived to another thirty years, like you know, into his early forties. And I think that was a sad situation. And I'd seen um, fungi over in, in Dingleby numerous times. I mean, and he was harassed, you know, in in the summer months you know, with the tourist boats. But I think I think what it is is when fungi actually disappeared, um, it was sad, but he was in his early forties and it was you know, it was to me it was like quite a natural death. Mm. Yeah, it was I guess inevitable that at some point he was going to take himself off, I think was what they the conclusion in the end was because did they actually ever find him? No, no, I personally think um, he's probably lying at the bottom of the seabed somewhere because he just disappeared and he was a creature of habit. So, you know, the boats would go out. I mean, there were some really great responsible tour operators that used to go out and see fungi, um, but it, some, sometimes that there were just simply too many vessels around the animal. And in the summer months, it was all day long. I'm not pointing a finger at any particular operator in Dingle because some of them were very responsible tour operators. But, you know, the you know the boats would go out at nine o'clock in the morning and, and be out there all day backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, and not really, you know, stop their trips until about eight or nine in the evening. And Fungi had that all day, every day in the summer. And, I mean, even if he did live to a, a good age, would you think that would have contributed to his both mental and physical health? Um, I think it's like, you know, it's like humans. I mean, you know, some you know, some people just don't like noise. Um, so I think especially towards when he was, you know, much older, 
you know, when he was quite an elderly dolphin, um, I do feel that he should have had a little bit more peace than he was given at times. A bit more space, yeah. Yeah. And in relation to Danny, I mean, Danny was a lot younger, as you said. Um, would, you, would you have called him a, a teenager, a teenage dolphin? Um, I'd probably call him more of a young dolphin, really. As I say, he was only around about 10. Yeah, so I would more of a young dolphin, really. And he, when he first came into the harbour, I mean, we didn't see him in the marina until probably six months or so later. But he, he seemed to, it seemed to escalate quite quickly his behaviour. Um, and we, we used to have you know, reports of him in the marina and had a few near misses the boat who were busy watching the dolphin and that sort of thing rather than watching where they were going. But I mean, he was, he would take you by surprise. I know that one of the first interactions we ever had with him in the work boat, we were busy towing a, a boat. Um, some of the, the team were out moving some boats around and, uh, were taken somewhat by surprise when he did the, the whitey backflip in front of them. Yeah, he did, he did seem to seek boats out and, and do some quite spectacular acrobatics. Uh, I mean, how far along in the habituation, in his, you know, his habituation process was, was that point? At least stage four or five. So he, he, he sort of um, was, was very, lost all of his wearing pretty much around boats at that point and was actually seeking people out for company. Uh, yes, yes. And as I say, it really just depends on the actual location of the animal as well. Um, you know, if people can access the, the animal, there's we've got a solitary dolphin in on the east coast of Ireland and people can actually literally just, just walk in and enter the water. So where does you get some dolphins that are just a bit more offshore? Did enter the water with them? I, d- I don't think people were too interactive with them. Um, in terms of Danny, uh, I think there was, we, we have one or two reports of people trying to get in the water with him in the marina, but he was quite frisky. Um, mm. And I think that, that frightened uh, the, the other person that did go in the water. But in general, it was more, you know, sort of uh, just people in boats and paddle boards and that sort of thing. Um, he was He was quite curious. He liked to come and see what was going on when we had our festival, the first time we did the, the boat, boat festival. Right. He came and had a, a poke round to see what was going on. Um and right. if there was a, a boat capsized with, with the um the sailing academy, the, the dinghies, one of them capsized in the marina and the work boat had gone out to the sea all as well, and there was a rescue boat as well from the sailing academy and he came and had a poke about. And it's it's one of those two a double edged swords almost because um I remember quite vividly watching the C C T V of that occurrence. And the, there was a, a young girl who'd, uh, who was having a bit of a tough time. It was a, not a nice day weather-wise. And she was sat in the bow of this rescue boat and they were trying to recover her dinghy that she'd capsized in, in the marina. And uh, it had been quite close to the breakwater and she was in floods of tears, bless her, and sat up in the front. And then Danny sort of turned up and, and did a few flips and had a bit of a, 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 a nosy about. And it brightened her, her day and her face just became sort of absolutely animated and seems absolutely magical but at the same time you know it's, that's that hit the price I guess of his his health and well-being no absolutely and I think I think people because they see dolphins either at facilities like SeaWorld or on the television in captivity I think you know I think the, ma- the majority of the public just don't realize how large and powerful these animals can be but you know at the same time I can imagine you know, I could just see the girl's smile on her on her face, really. You know, because it is very exciting to see a wild dolphin up close. 
He was a big lad as well. Oh, absolutely. Male bottom was dolphins tend to be, um, depending on where they come from, but, you know, the Morifer dolphins, I mean, they're the largest bottlenose dolphins globally. So they and they are big. I mean, the male bottlenose dolphins up there are, are pretty big. Yes, I was quite yeah. surprised actually. It, uh, it did take me by surprise when I first met Danny. Um, how how large he was. Um, yes, <laughs> and Fungi was quite a large dolphin too. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you get into the water with that with that animal, I mean, what looks from the outside of being you know, sort of quite a friendly, um, gentle creature. I should imagine getting into the water, it suddenly becomes quite apparent that actually the size and their power uh, can be quite frightening. Yes, definitely. And I mean, I guess I remember you showing us before a, a video of uh, the dangers of interacting solitary cetaceans or the behaviours, I think, more is probably the, about the film of the solitary social uh, cetacean that maybe people wouldn't necessarily be aware of. Um, having, to, as you say, seen them on uh, television or been to a sea life centre. What are those dangers to the public in getting into the water with a dolphin? I mean, since monitoring solitary dolphins, I haven't really seen much aggression from from uh, from them, really. Um, I mean, there's a female dolphin over in Ireland. I wouldn't say she's aggressive at all, um, but I have seen the public not reading or understanding her her body language and you know when they when she's basically telling them that she wants a space or you know she wants them to back off and they don't then then as you see on on marine connections video which could also be seen on our on our uh, website um she makes it clear to them but then you know i've seen footage or i've seen dusty you know displaying this behavior and it's been it's not been an aggressive initially um, but they'll still they'll still chase after her in the water. Well, people wouldn't chase after a lion in the Serengeti. So, really, why chase after that wild dolphin in the sea? And then, unfortunately, what happens is the dolphin, you know, they, they might butt the you know the people, uh, the the swimmer. So once again, it's reading that body language. But most solitary dolphins are they're, they're yeah they're, they're just they'll either swim all for, you know. I mean, there's a dolphin called George who initially came over from Ireland. Um, and funnily enough, he was on the Dorset coast for many years and then he went back to France and he came back and now he's still over in, in France. Really would just lie on his on his back and love his belly being rubbed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he's such an old boy now. I mean, I, I still receive updates about him um, and he's still hanging around in the harbours. And I mean, most solitary dolphins, even though... That most of them are never really without injuries, you know, some kind of vessel injury. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Folk Tales and you join us for the next episode soon.